those of you that are above first grade, I have a question for you. Um, maybe you've experienced this, and, and I want you to just listen and, and think about the times maybe that you've gone through this. In fact, even possibly this last week on Thursday, maybe you went through something like this. It's a really, really hot day out, and you're sitting at home, very happy with the temperature inside of your house, and you realize something, though. You have to go somewhere. Then you remember that your car has been sitting out in the hot sun for the last few hours. And you know that what has happened is in the sun, it has transformed from being this incredible invention of transportation into what is essentially now a mobile easy bake oven. But you know you have to go. And so you go and you open the door and realize that the air inside the car is infinitely hotter than the air that is outside the car at this time. And as you climb in, you try to avoid touching anything that is metal so that you are not immediately branded with a GM symbol somewhere on your body. And when you close that door after you, the situation really sinks in. It's that situation, that moment that you realize that you're about to die as you sit in that heat. If you cannot get cool air to, to come on at some point here in the next few seconds, you might actually die. So you scramble for your keys, you find the right one, you put it in the ignition and you turn it on and suddenly volcanic level air blasts out of the vents into your face from what you had cranked on the day before, right? We've been through this and so now we're gasping for relief and you reach and, and find the switch to your window and you roll that window down and feel what is already hot air outside rushing in with just a slight bit of relief as the hot air inside goes out. Now, if you're getting into the car with anyone else, especially if that other person is your father, at this moment where you've rolled the window down, you probably have heard this, well, the air conditioner does not work if the windows are down, Right? I understand how to efficiently use an air conditioner, but do I need this lecture every time? It, it doesn't. Anyways, we'll move on. In that moment, after a few minutes of the, the car running and the windows down, you start feeling uh, something different coming out of the vent, and it is the breath of a thousand angels that you've been waiting for that cools you down, and you can roll up the windows and just go about your day, right? Now, why I bring this up is because this experience, this moment of sitting in that hot car with the doors closed, looking to open a window, brings to mind something that God put on my heart a couple months ago. You see, there's a quote that is really popular in, in, our, uh, in today's culture, okay? It's a common one. Though its origins are not modern, it has kind of wormed its way into what I like to call our Facebook theology, if you don't know what Facebook theology is, it's this. It's the study of God through Facebook. I didn't say it was good theology. I just said that's what it is, okay? So in that, our culture is driven by a lot of this, and the quote is this. When God closes a door, he opens a window, right? Now, some of you are cringing right now going, oh, please, don't touch that quote. That's the one I have hung up in my bathroom. Please don't do that. Now, before you, you check out on me here, just bear with me. I'm going to try my best not to tear it apart, okay? But we're going to look into this idea of God closing and opening things today. When we say things like this, well, it looks like God has closed this door. What are we really talking about? Most of the time I found that it seems like we're talking about maybe an opportunity that is now shut off to us, right? 
Something that we could have done or could have grasped that seems to have just been right outside of reach, as if God was saying, no, I'm not going to let you go there. And so we say, okay, God closed this door. Now, some of us uh, see these opportunities, and they, they can range from a whole lot of different things. Like they can be uh, maybe a job opportunity or, or a relationship, or maybe it's like a treatment that you need. Um, and maybe it's an investment opportunity, or maybe it goes all the way down to something like a free happy meal, you know, that you might get. I didn't, they're not all great opportunities, but we have these opportunities. And whether the opportunity is huge or relatively small, we all feel something when those opportunities slip past us. When those opportunities are just out of our reach, when that door is closed and we cannot get to that. I want you to think for yourself in this, what do you feel when you have an opportunity like that slip past you? It can be really hard or frustrating, disheartening, and even downright painful at times. And in that moment of feeling that is when we find this quote about God closing the door, right? Some of us, we find a peace in that, this idea that, you know what, if God closed the door, that means he must have a better door coming up for me to walk through, right? So I'm, I'm just going to be okay with what God is doing, because if there's a better door to come, that will be great. That's okay. I'll just, I'll, I'll trust that. Others of us, we take that rage, that frustration, that anger, that hurt, and we direct it all towards God. And we say, how dare you stop me from another opportunity? This would have been the one. This was the way to go. How are you doing this to me again? Now, when we look at those two responses, it's pretty simple for us to go, oh, I can clearly see which one is correct. But what if I were to tell you that both of them are incorrect? Before you jump into a disagreement with me, we're gonna, I'm going to ask that you hear me out, Okay. That second reaction is super easy to see the problem with it. We look at it and we go, okay, getting angry with God is not a good thing. In fact, anger with God always stems from the same place, and it is a place of pride. It's this idea that I know better what should have been done. God, you messed this one up. You should have let me handle it. That's when we get frustrated is when God has messed up an opportunity for us in our eyes. He closes that door and we should have been able to, to choose this, to go the way that we wanted. And it's a lack of trust in God's character and ability to, to know and do what is good, pleasing and perfect as his word says he does. We carry anger towards God over a situation like that. And, and when we do that, we require humility. But for those of you that have ever been angry, you understand humility does not come easy when you're angry. In fact, we avoid humility. We hold grudges against God for years, fighting that humility that is trying to help soften our hearts. And we miss out on a lot of things because we are so upset on the one thing that God kept us from that would have definitely been the answer to our problems. But I want to look at the other response because this is the one that most of us listened to and went, well, I think that that's the right one. This one's harder to see the error in, except we have to look at what the source of this one is. Why this one would be our choice or our option. When we believe that God has closed 
one door for the opportunity of another door to open, we start doing something that is unhealthy. We start putting our hope in this future opportunity that God may or may not open for us. We start holding on to this idea that, hey, guess what? God closed that door, but he's got something better. And we love that promise. And while there are times that God does open other doors, we need to think about when the door closes, what are we going to put our hope in? Because if my hope is in a future door, it's not in Christ. If my hope is in a future opportunity, it is not sitting where it needs to be. I have moved my hope from where it should be and put it on what might be. Now, I'll give you an example of this. When I was in high school, I was in a band with my younger brother, John, and then my friend, Joe, who Joe is a youth pastor in gearing. It's kind of cool that we get to be around each other again. But we were in this little punk band traveling around and, and playing at different places, and, and we thought we were good. But yeah, I'll just never mind. We'll, you'll never find out. Anyways, um, when we were in high school, we all wanted to do music full time. That's what we wanted to do. And right when I got out of high school, I had this opportunity where we were all kind of heading our separate ways, and I had written some songs uh, just to perform myself, some songs that were just kind of like a solo act thing. And I got the opportunity to go and record in a professional studio in Iowa, and so I drove and went and got to record one song, and, and it was really fun to do that. And a few weeks later, after going to a concert and talking to a guy, he contacted me and said, okay, I've listened to your song. I've listened to this a few times, and I really want you to come with me. I'm going on a tour. We're going to hit up a bunch of different cities all across the nation, and I want you to come with me. I want you to come play. Now, I was super excited. This is what I had been waiting for. This was the opportunity that I had been looking for. So we start planning. I start writing more songs and working on them, making sure that I've got everything down the way that I need it to. I start thinking about other places I can call to help us get more shows on this tour. He's working on the same thing, and we're both trying to raise funds so that we can afford to even go on this in just a few months. After a couple weeks, he'd been calling me occasionally, talking about new places that we were going to get to go play with, and he called me at one point and said, hey, we've got some shows now booked in Texas with this really big band, and it was, it, I was excited. I was so excited because we were talking about going to big arenas and playing, and it was something I never thought would happen. Well, a couple weeks later, he calls me, and his whole tone is different, and I immediately think, oh no, what's about to happen? He says, you know, we've been raising all this money to, uh, to go on this tour, and, and I've been saving it, and, and uh, I have another opportunity that's come up. And here's, here's the thing. Um, I have this opportunity to go to Japan and, and to kind of go, go on a sightseeing tour around the country there. And I've always wanted to go to Japan, so I think I'm going to do that. And then he hangs up. Now, I'm sitting there going, Really? You want to go to Japan? I mean, I kind of want to go to Japan. I want to see it too. It'd be cool. But really? Right now? This has to happen right now? You see, in that moment, I was going, this isn't fair. But then I thought, well, God must be closing this door because he has a better one. He has a better opportunity. There will be some other way that I'm going to get to go and do this music thing. So for over the next few years, I waited 
And I hoped in this future opportunity that would come up going, it's going to happen at some point. I just need to be ready for it. Be thinking about this, continue to write music and look for those opportunities. All the while I was working in ministry, my first couple years in student ministry with this constant thought in the back of my mind that, well, but the student ministry is great, but there's another ministry in music that I'm going to get to go do. And that's what I, that's what I want to do. That's what God's going to open this door. And so I'm sitting there in one place, missing out on a ton of things that God has for me to do and has called me to do because I'm hoping in something that I don't know if is ever going to come. And then I'm holding a grudge against this other artist who every single time I see his name pop up on Facebook for a while, for the next few years, I feel this little fire kind of burning in me going, why would he do that? I hope you enjoyed Japan, you know, getting frustrated. Then I'm holding the grudge towards God going, God, why would you close this door? And as time went on further and further, my frustration would get more and more. You see, that's what happens when we put our hope in a future door instead of having our hope solidly in the one who deserves it in Christ. We miss out on what God has called us to do because we're hoping that he's going to do what I want to do. Both responses to a door being closed are incorrect because they're both based in a false understanding of who God is and how he works. We have to think about the fact that when I'm saying, okay, I want this to happen and I'm just going to wait for God to open a new door to it. Isn't that me saying, okay, God, I have to submit to your will now, but my will is going to happen eventually. That's what that attitude is. We got to think about, is that right? Is that okay? So the question, does God close off opportunities to us? Let's look, let's see scripturally whether or not God does close off opportunities and why he would do that in the first place. So if you have your Bible, open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 16, looking at verses 6 and 7. It'll also be up on the screen. And if you have your phone with the Bible app, you can open up and go to the events tab. And right there, you'll be able to follow along with all the scripture from today. So we're in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 7. It says, next Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mycenae, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. This is a very interesting section of scripture for me. I look at this and I go, wait a second. Paul, the, the like original missionary, the guy who went out and boldly gave up everything about himself in order to share the gospel. He would go places and do incredible things for God willingly. He suffered great loss and did not care because it was all worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. That guy, God didn't want him to go to Asia to share the gospel. That's weird, isn't it? That seems strange to us. It doesn't seem to make sense. Why would God say, Paul, I know that you're really good at this. I know that you can carry the message into this area, but I'm not letting you go. Why would he do that? And not just Asia, but two provinces at the same time where he says, no, 
You're not going there. You're not carrying the gospel there. That's tough for us. We see that and go, God, it, it doesn't really make sense. But here's what we have to realize is that God had a plan for the province of Asia, and it was in his timing that Paul was supposed to go there. But what if Paul and Silas had just gone anyways? What if they had this kind of, well, God's closed the door, but he's, there's got to be an open window somewhere idea about getting into that place to share the gospel. You see, if that was the case and they had just gone, well, we're just going to go in here anyways because that door may have closed, but there's got to be another way. If they had had that attitude, we'd read the book of Acts very differently. We'd read it much more like we read the story of Jonah. It'd be a story of Paul's disobedience and God correcting and bringing him back. But that's not how we read it. But I want you to understand something. If that's what it was, if that's what we saw and we were like, oh, Paul, you're being disobedient. Why is it okay to call that disobedience and then we can just go ahead and live as if it's not now? Why is it okay for us to live in that way and say, well, I know God's closed the door, but I'm going to go through this way because I can clearly see this is where I need to go. Or it's a good thing. So God probably isn't the one who closed this door. So we'll find a way in anyways. Why is it okay for us now to justify that if we would have looked at Paul and said, Paul, that's wrong. We need to stop and think about it. And in order to do that, we have to understand Paul's reaction in the first place. Did Paul want to go to Asia? Did he want to go to these places? Absolutely. That was Paul's plan. You see that in the text as you read through. It's what he wanted to do. Paul was very strategic. He had this military kind of outlook on how to reach finding specific cities that he would reach into as hubs that would then affect the rest of the place, the rest of the area. Missionaries today do the same thing. They look at the area that they're going to and they say, wow, this location would be perfect because this is the hub. All the communities around it come to this one. So if we can reach there, we can then reach out from there. It's very strategic. You do the same thing in church planting, where you look at a city and you say, okay, if we were here to plant a church, where would be the best place? Who would be the people group in this area that we're trying to reach? And how would we reach them in the most strategic way possible? Paul was thinking that way. If I can get into this city in the province of Asia, all the communities around come there. If we can get a presence of the gospel there, it will spread like wildfire out of there. If you know your biblical geography, Paul is correct. It is a really great idea. He's not wrong in what he's thinking. But God's strategy of reaching was better. God had a better plan, even though Paul sounds really good. God had better timing, even though Paul seemed to be in the right place at that time. Because just a couple chapters later, we see in Acts 19.10, it says this, this went on for the next two years so that the people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. You see, just a few years later, we have Paul in this place called Ephesus, and he is teaching and growing this group of believers, and it is spreading throughout the entire province that he was told at one point, no, not yet. You see, God had closed the door only to later open that same door again for Paul in his timing. But what's amazing to me 
is, is that it doesn't just stop there. You see, God's plan was to go beyond just Paul. God's plan was to also use Peter, who also had uh, ministry that he did in both of these locations. And if you read the beginning of the book of 1 Peter, it mentions both these provinces as places this book is specifically written to. It's incredible to see what God's plan was and how he reached entire areas where they all heard the message of the gospel because of people's willingness to submit to his plan. You see, that's the example that we have of Paul here. This was Paul saying, I'll submit and I will trust that you know what is right. Even though I've put work, even though I have desire, even though I think that this might be the best thing, I'm going to submit to what you're calling me to. I'm going to trust you and submit to your will. So how about for us? When God closes a door to one of your opportunities, even something that's really good, what's your reaction? Do you submit to the will of God or do you try to find your way around the door? The quote says that when God closes the door, he opens the window, right? That's what the quote says, but I think it more often looks like this. God closes the door, but we see the window. We start looking through that window. And we see on the other side what is there that we knew was there. And how good it would be. How incredible of an opportunity it is. How this has to be what God wanted me to do in the first place. He's just testing me. He's just seeing if I'm willing to go over a speed bump to get there. This is probably not even God closing the door. It's probably Satan. So I need to, I need to figure out a way in there anyways. And so what we do is we take out what I call our crowbar of Christianity and we pry open that window and climb on through and go where God has said, not right now. And we start doing the things that we think would have been better and we justify it with quotes just like what we're talking about today. Non-scriptural, yet they sound really good. God must have opened this window for me. I helped him, but he opened it for the most part. He allowed me to open it. He didn't stop me, so that means he opened it, right? Then we think about uh, sometimes it's not just using justification of non-scriptural things. We use scripture to justify our acts in this. We say things like this. Well, if God's plan is to prosper me and not to harm me, and I can clearly see that what's in there would be prosperous for me, then that's what he wants. So I'm just obeying what God's plan is for my life by going over there anyways. See, we take out the crowbar, which is our justification, whatever reason we give for it, and we make our way in. Romans 8, 5 through 6 says this. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Now that heart and mind controlled by the flesh is what we look like most often, I believe. We don't like the idea of having to trust God, especially when it means I cannot go where I know 100% is the place that I should be. We have a problem with submission because we have a problem with trust. I I heard a sermon the other day. I was driving in my car heading to Denver and flipping through radio stations, and the sermon came on, and there was a thought uh, that the pastor had kind of gone off on this little trail to the side to, to discuss, and it was this idea. Where is the line 
that if this gets crossed, you no longer trust God? What's your limit of trust with God? And I think about Joseph from the Old Testament. Joseph sat in prison so long that people forgot he even existed. And we don't see a verse right after that saying, and he lost his faith in God. He gave up on trusting in God. No, in fact, Joseph just kept on serving in the prison. Just kept on doing what he was there to do. Without thinking, oh, someday... We don't see that example in Joseph. We look much more like Peter, though. You see, Peter, every time he was at risk, immediately the trust in God dropped, right? You see that in all the times that Peter tries to take matters into his own hands. He pulls out his sword. He pulls Jesus aside and says, we're not going to let that happen. Those kind of things. Peter steps out of the boat onto the water. He has a moment of intense faith in God and then immediately goes, what am I doing? And starts sinking down. Now, we, we see it mostly when Peter is asked, do you know Jesus? Weren't you one of the guys following him? No, I don't know that guy. You're mistaking me for someone else. I don't know him. You see, Peter, when he was at risk, did not trust God. That was his limit. Is the moment you're asking me to be at risk, I am not going to trust you. But the one that really gets me is Job. In Job 13, 15, we see where Job's limit is. And here's what he says. Even though God kills me, I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case with him. Even though God kills me, he's the only one I can trust. Even if it costs me my life, he's the only one I can go to. Even if he's allowing all of these things to happen to me, he's still the only one I can trust. You see, Job's line of trust with God was even beyond death. He trusted God. And that blows my mind to see that kind of trust from Job. And so I ask this question of you, what's your limit? What's the line that you draw where you say, God, if you cross this, I can no longer trust you. I will no longer trust you. In fact, I will take matters into my own hands. And I'll start to correct what you're messing up. That's what crowbar Christianity looks like. It's when we hit the point of going, I will do it, God. You're messing it up. I need to take care of this because you're not doing it right. And it's in those moments that we miss out on probably the most important parts of our relationship with God. Sometimes God closes a door. Yes, he, he definitely does that. And there are times that God then opens a door or directs us in a new direction and says, I need you to just head this way. But what about the times when God closes a door and nothing else opens? What about the moments where we're walking and moving and God says, stop? What about the times when, when God calls us to be still when it means allowing opportunities to pass by us? Are we driven by our fleshly ambition in those moments, thinking, but I have to keep going? Or, or am I willing to submit to God's will and trust the Spirit of God to drive me? Psalms 46.10, we know this verse well. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. We fear the still. 
We fear slowing down. Still means having to put down my control. And like Job realized that I have no other hope but God. And how I know that we fear the still is I want you to think about our culture today. Do we ever sit still? Not for long. If we sit still, it's because someone messed up the schedule, right? It's because we got rained out. I think about when I'm trying to schedule things for, for youth, middle school or high school, it doesn't make a difference. Some of you, yeah, uh, it's ridiculous. I took the school calendars uh, from the schools around here that we have youth involved in our group from, and I kind of laid them over the top of each other trying to figure out what are days that work for us to schedule something. You know what happens? It blacks out. Because when you put them all together, there's no open days. Some schools have things almost every single day anyways. And it's really difficult to try to schedule something in a culture that's already overscheduled. But we do this for a purpose. We get this idea uh, of, you know, people like moving to areas like where we live, trying to avoid the hustle and bustle to slow down and to be still a little bit. But it's the same principle as when we buy a bigger house so that we have more room, right? We have more room for a few weeks and then we fill that room with stuff, don't we? That's what happens. And we do the same thing with time. When I cut something out, most of the time it's because later I'm going to put something back into that. Because being still is not something we enjoy. We are uncomfortable with it. We don't like it. But we get put in these be still places for a purpose. In these be still places, sometimes God calls us to those because we've forgotten or we never knew in the first place what it means to actually know and love him, what it means to actually trust him, what it means to have intimacy with God, what it means to be in real relationship with him. You see, in his word, he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. Draw close to me and I will draw close to you. These are the moments that we do that, but they're the moments that we avoid the most. We don't like them. They're uncomfortable It means having to think. It means having to do introspection, look inside and figure out what is going on in my own heart. It means having a heart like David that says, God, search me and know me. Point out any wrong way within me that I can correct, that I can come back to you. We don't like those moments. We don't like those times. We don't like when the door has closed and nothing opens and God just calls us to be with him. We avoid that because we're uncomfortable, because our hope is more in our understanding of God's ability than it is in his ability. But we need to learn that being still with God is the place where our hearts are renewed, where our minds are transformed. This is the place where we begin to understand more of who God is and his great love for us. And that great love for us was tested at one point tested in a moment of closed doors where we have Jesus sitting in the garden of Gethsemane and he is crying out to the father saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to suffer this. I don't want to have to go through this pain. I don't want to have to go through this spiritual separation from you. I don't want to have to feel what I know is coming. Take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. You see, in that moment, Jesus had an opportunity to break open the window and go a different direction. And yet he chose to submit 
to the Father's will, even though it meant sitting still and suffering harm. And it continues just a a few moments later when the crowd shows up to arrest him and they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus stands up and says, I am. When he says, I am, it's one of my favorite moments in the Bible. It's when he flashes his God card real quickly. Because all of the guards who've come to arrest him, it says they're blown back to the ground. It's like a shockwave comes out of his mouth and takes them down. If you did not know that's in there, you should go back and read it. Because it's an incredible moment of Jesus saying, I see the window, but I'm not going to climb through it. Because the moment that they were blown back, he could have just run away. And he stood there and he said, who are you looking for? And willingly submitted to what God was calling him to. It continues on as they're mocking him, as they're beating him, as they're putting him on a false trial and bringing people in to lie about him. Even when their lies contradict one another and and there's no way to prove him guilty, they're still demanding that he be put to death and he keeps silent, knowing that he could fully justify himself. He could prove his innocence, that he has done nothing wrong worthy of death, and yet he submits to the Father's will. It continues on as they put him on the cross and they're mocking him saying, Jesus, if you're the son of God, call down angels right now to save you. Just like your word says, if you're the son of God, prove it. Could Jesus have called angels down right in that moment? And would they have obeyed him and come? Absolutely. You see, he had windows that he could have opened all the way through this whole thing. And yet he submitted to the father's will, even though it cost him greatly. That great love that he has for you, that he has for me was tested in a time of closed doors. And he had so many opportunities to just bypass that. And he chose to submit even though he was at risk, even though he knew he would not make it through this. He trusted the father, even though it cost him. And I want you to think about that today as we take communion. To think about the fact that we have an example in our Savior, in Jesus, of what it really looks like to submit in a time of being still, even if it might cost us, even if there's risk, even if opportunities to find something that seems more prosperous pass us by, even if we can see something that looks better going away from us that we could catch up to if we just got up and went. Jesus gave us an incredible example for our benefit to know and grow in what it is to be in right relationship with the Father. And I want to challenge you today as you take communion to remember that it was not just his death, but it was his submission to the will of the Father on your behalf that is incredible and we remember that today. And there's some of you in here who maybe are hearing about Jesus and his death and you do not know what it means that he died on your behalf. Here's what it means. It means this, we owed God because of our sin. We want to pay for that by doing good things. It's taking the bad and kind of balancing it out with some good. But the problem is, is that it doesn't work that way. Good deeds are not the right currency to pay for what is owed. We don't owe good things. We owe the breath of life that God has given to us. We have to give back to him his life and be separated from him for eternity in hell. That's how we can pay for our own sins. 
but because of God's great love for us and the willingness of his son to submit to the father's will. Jesus came and he lived perfectly and he died the death that you deserve to die. And he gave that breath of life to God who accepted it on your behalf. And it said that anyone who takes the weight of their salvation, whatever it takes for them to be saved and puts it on the work of Jesus instead of on themselves can be saved. Anyone who puts their trust fully on Jesus and his sacrifice is saved. And so today I want to invite you to do that. If you have not put your faith in Jesus as your savior, as the one and only way for you to be brought back into right relationship with God and to spend eternity with him, I want to invite you to simply do that today. And when you've done that, if you have done that, I want to invite you to join us in communion as we remember Jesus paying that price. Let's pray. God, I just thank you. I thank you for the fact that you love us so much that you were willing to suffer, that you were willing to go through horrifying, terrible things. That God, even though you had opportunities to do things differently or to go around, you were willing to submit. Jesus, you were willing to trust the Father's will. And I pray that today, as we remember in communion, that our understanding would grow, that our hearts would soften to what it truly looks like to be submissive to the Father's will, that when the doors close in front of us, that we would be willing to be still. And in fact, God, today I pray that you would help us as we take communion to take a moment and be still, to let our hearts be broken again for what Jesus has done for us, allowing his body to be broken on our behalf allowing his blood to be poured out that we might be saved even though we don't deserve it. God, help us as we move forward from here to remember that when a door closes, it's not about the next door that might open. It is about knowing you, trusting you, seeing your track record of perfect faithfulness even when we are unfaithful and remembering that you're the only one worthy of that trust. As we remember your sacrifice today. Draw us in to more obedience. Draw us in to understanding it's not about being servants to the king, but being in relationship with the one who longs to be in relationship with us. God, we praise you and we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together and to remember. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you're ready, come and take communion.